Thanks so much for joining me today, Zeka. It's been a long time coming. I think we've, we've been trying to get this done for such a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy we finally get to, to dive into to a lot of different things that, that you have going on. I, I want to start a little abnormally here it, it talk a little bit about the journey, but I want to start off with, with sort of your travels because travel for me has impacted my life a lot. I think anybody who, who travels sort of significantly or, or travels early in their life, it, it sort of impacts them in a way that it, it just really benefits psychology and mental health, I think, you know, for the long run. So I want to kind of want to talk about your travels early on and maybe your time living in Scandinavia and how maybe that embedded in, in yourself, maybe some philosophies that you have in life and maybe how it's it's sort of formulated you as a human being today. I love it, Grant. I'm so honored to be here. I've, I've loved your show for a long time and I'm, I feel very honored to be here. When I was 18, I, I actually was going to study fine art photography and and um, for my whole youth, kind of from 10 years old up until 18 years old, working through um, high school and the, the high school yearbook as the lead photographer in our small high school on this little island, nice. I actually thought photography is what I wanted to do professionally. And I loved ar artistic photography, fine art photography. I have a lot of artists in my family. My, my father was an architect and my mother's an artist mm. and my brother's a graphic designer and artist. And my yeah. grandfather was a famous interior designer in Seattle. My grandmother was uh she was actually a seamstress for elizabeth arden back in the 1950s and wow yeah um, incredible like a, you know many more artists in our family and i got inspired by art through the my mother's side of my family and um in that experience um i i decided that i wanted to go to study photography professionally so i actually convinced my family that uh going to RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology in New York, would be a worthy investment. So at 18, I kind of packed my bags and went out there. It was an expensive school, um, but funded by Kodak. And it was rated the number one school in photography in the country, aside from Santa in Santa Barbara, there's um, a photo school at the time there was, and there was also Parsons. Um, anyway, yep. went to this school and spent a year there. I was very fortunate to have, you know, my professor was a, a longtime National Geographic photographer. He, he photographed the first images of Machu Picchu in, um, wow. in um, ultraviolet. And just an incredible teacher I was so inspired. Um, I just felt like my work was just blooming and the experience was incredible, but high, very high stress. It, it was, um, I realized quickly that the school was gearing people a lot toward commercial photography, which was yeah. centered around New York city and being from a very small Island up in the Northwest, you know, growing up in the woods, the <laughs> idea of being in New York city and being a professional commercial photographer just didn't really excite me too much. So here I am one year into the program doing really well. It, loving it. I was actually going to college with my best friend at the time. We were both studying photography, him photojournalist, photojournalism and myself, fine art photography. From the same small island? Y'all both went? Yeah. So yeah, we, we both uh, started at the school together and he recently passed away, my best friend, but um, <laughs> pretty wild. Uh, went to school together. Um, we had the experience there and it was incredible, but he wanted to say I wanted to go and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just did not see myself being a professional photographer in New York city. So <laughs> uh, here I am one day kind of thinking, well, this isn't for me, but I don't know what is what. So uh, this may, may speak to my character. I'll just kind of tell a little bit more about it. I went to the library and I went to the travel section and I told myself that I'm going to take my, my camera with me and I'm going to spend a year and kind of figure out what I want to do 
do like my folks did back in the 1960s and 1970s. They traveled for years extensively around the world. Wow. A bit of bit of like kind of hip, hippie, hippie traveler, so sure. to speak, um, people like that. And um, I kind of got the inspiration to think about that. So I went to the library, I closed my eyes in the travel section and grabbed the first book that came to mind. Come on. I, this is, yeah, I'm serious. I opened the book and it was Thailand. And I mean, sure enough, I made a, I made a very good pick because that, that is to this day, one of my favorite countries to go back to. I have friends that live there. It's, it's just wonderful. It's just a wonderful country, beautiful people. It's uh, so I got very fortunate. So here I am some four months later in Thailand and um, I don't really know what I want to do. Like most 18, 19, 20 year olds, you kind of don't know where you're going or what you're doing. So I uh, actually, long story short, I met a, a Swiss, this is, you're not going to believe this when I start <laughs> telling you this, but I met a Swiss cow herder who okay. every summer would herd cows like a shepherd in, in the mountains yeah. of Switzerland. Yeah. And he said, he, we, we really connected, great person. And he said, uh, why don't you uh, fly over to India and meet me? And I'll show you, we'll go around Southern India together. I'm flying out in a few days. Um, actually, um, he said, I'm going to stay in an ashram. I didn't know what an ashram was or anything like that. And um, so I said, okay. And I booked a ticket. He left and I said, well, you know, this is adventure, right? You know, so I'm just going right. to go. So I fly over to what was called Madras, one of the largest cities in the South in Tamil, uh, Tamil Nadu and uh, show up and get off out of the airport it's like 150 degrees out <laughs> and um you know it's it's just chaos and there's no air conditioning or anything like that and i can still kind of picture the scene my shock from it. it was like kind of immediate trauma and i'm like okay this is wild so i look outside and there's just a wall of rickshaw drivers all i'm the only person that would need a rickshaw they're all just kind of like they, they can't go past a line into the building. They have to kind of solicit past the line. Right, right, right. And everybody's like, yeah, come to me, come to me, yelling, yelling, yelling. And here I am with my backpack. I don't even know if I have money at the time. I think I probably did, but I was like, I, I don't know what to do. I just was in shock, you know? And and I, I started walking toward them, not really knowing. Actually, here's what I knew. I knew there was a train station right nearby, but I didn't know where. And I was asking people, nobody really knew. Mm -hmm. I, I went out dumb enough to ask the rickshaw dr drivers where the train station is. Nobody had an answer. So I walk past them and there's an older gentleman, probably in his seventies. He's a couple of feet shorter than me, really kind looking and everything. He says, where are you going? Where are you going? And I said, um, I'm trying to find the train station. And he goes, oh, no problem. No problem at all. He says, give me your backpack. I have yeah. this like way too heavy backpack. I hand him the backpack and I think, well, I could probably outrun this guy, you know, if he tries to sure, pull with sure, my backpack. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And here I am. So I give him the backpack. He starts walking and he starts walking kind of like down this little road. It's there's no shops or anything. He walks through these bushes and I'm thinking, oh, this is great. I'm going to get like, you know, mm -hmm. attacked in the bushes or something. For, but he, he goes through this trail and we end up winding down to a platform at, at a train station. Come on. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, okay. And he, he puts my bag down in front of me. And this is kind of the, the magic and the power of India. This is, I love the story because it really captures it. He said, just one minute. So he walks off, he comes back and he's got a piece of paper in his hand and he hands mm -hmm. it to me. I'm like, what's this? He's like, it's a ticket to get to into Madras. And I'm like, thank you. And I'm looking down at the ticket and I look up and the guy starts walking off. He didn't want money. 
he didn't want anything. He just wanted to welcome me to the country. Wow. Yeah, it was insane. And um, that that led me. Okay, so here's the here's the twist of the story. So here I am in Madras. I get on the train. I finally find the old town called Georgetown, and and um, walked through this area to find this ashram. Finally found it after a couple hours. Uh, just came full chaos. Um, hardly anyone spoke English. Got to the place. I'm exhausted. I open the door and this wonderful, beautiful older woman, she opens the door. She She's so kind. She says, please come in, please rest. You know, And I, I was just really, really so happy to be there. It was so, it was like a, an oasis. She had, I had a plate of what, what's called, a, I think it's called a tali, where it's a traditional Tamil Nadu dish, where you have kind of like a, a rice um, disc and you have coconut hmm. chutney and other types of specialty South Indian um, cuisine. And it's very simple. You just eat it under these little metal dishes and you dip it and it's, you know, always using your right hand. Anyway, so I had that meal and then I said, have you seen Dan? Have you seen Daniel, the Swiss person I was meant to meet? And she said, "Oh, I'm very sorry. He left yesterday." Son of a. <laughs> so, so that that led me on a, a six month journey to find Daniel. I went all over India to find Daniel. It was it was an amazing experience. What? No, I'm just I didn't actually look for Daniel. I never I never talked with Daniel ever again. So Daniel, if you're out there, no, you owe me a tally. So Unbelievable. There's a story. And that that gave me, um, uh, you know, I could go on at length sure. about the inspiration about the country and such. I have to say overall, the diversity of that country, the history, the synergy between um, multiple religions and languages and cultures is is truly remarkable. Um, I don't know if there's quite another country on the planet that has such a tolerance for humanity. Where did you head after that? start yes. bouncing around other countries or did you settle down I somewhere did. and kind of I did I I went to Nepal I ended up river rafting through the uh, in Nepal there's this one of the highest gorges in the world I spent real quick are you that. taking yep. pictures of all this of this journey you know the funny thing about it it's a really good question I did I probably took only five rolls of photographs the whole time during my my travels for those first six to eight kind of six to eight months I I did not actually wow. end up putting much emphasis on photography. It was such a it was such an experience in just meeting people in so many different life situations. You were immersed. Yeah. You were just so fully immersed. immersed. I, yeah. I felt like the camera just became kind of like a like a filter between reality or it was, mm -hmm. it was quite inspiring. <laughs> I would recommend if anybody wants, some people laugh, they say, if you ever want your face ripped off, go to India for a few days. <laughs> like, and it's, you know, people have kind of nervous breakdowns when they go there because mm. it's very intense. The smells, the sounds, the experience. The experience is incredibly intense. It, for anyone that's used to a lot of control, like it, it, it's very intense. And mm. um, some people, they get afraid and they just need to leave immediately. And other people, they go, wow, this is transformational. And for me, it was yeah. the latter. It was really, yeah. I mean, I guess being open to, to that is also important. You just have to very much. Open. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So you're off to, to Nepal now? You're in Nepal? Nepal is incredible. Um, didn't spend a whole lot of time there, but maybe like a month, month and a half. It's it's actually a kingdom and um, an incredible place. The stupas in, in Kathmandu really brings up a lot of memories, the, the experience of it, meeting people from around the world. There's, there's kind of a culture that not a lot of people appreciate and it's kind of the traveler's culture. It, it, it's it's kind of a philosophy. You know, I think we're all kind of tourists in in one right, um, right on this right. on this planet. But when we spend time and we embrace things, I think that are eye opening in terms of what the world 
can teach us outside of the formalities of, let's say, the classroom. Tra- my father always said that travel is the greatest education. And my father yep. was kind of a... Wow, yeah. My father and mother were both very, very open-minded toward toward world experiences. It's a, it's quite a nice... It, it's a privilege, really. It's kind of a privilege. It's, it's, yeah, absolutely it is. So then you settled... Did you settle down somewhere and live for, for a little bit before I you I did. Came? You know, I, I actually thought I was going to go back to university in the United States, but I ended up getting, um, I actually ended up working in Denmark. I, I got, I got a job with DHL. Hmm. I ended up, so I, long story short, I was also an exchange student in Norway when I was 16. I was um, lucky enough to live in Lillehammer during the 1995 <laughs> Winter Olympics. And I was the only exchange student in the town of Lillehammer during the year of the Winter Olympics. And I, I was so, so I had a year with this host family in, in Norway and they were incredibly inspiring people. And uh, yeah, so I got exposure to kind of Scandinavian ways of thinking at that point. But then I, I got a, an opportunity to work in Copenhagen in uh, DHL, which is um, an yep. international shipping company and um, had two years in Denmark. So wow. uh, I sound like a, a Copenhagener when somebody <laughs> asked me, give me an oil or a beer or two. And I start to sound like a Copenhagener. <laughs> the experience of Denmark, for those who don't know, like Holland, where you are living, Mm-hmm. is a very progressive country. They have uh, social democracy and they have sort of an integrated economy that includes uh, externalities into the into the management of an economy or well, we won't say management of economy. Mm-hmm. We'll say we'll say the policies surrounding government investments. That's a better okay. way to put it. Interesting. Okay. And in Denmark, for example, cooperative finance with things like wind are very prevalent um, wind farms on shared financing models and things like that. I ended up working uh, actually a few jobs in, in, in Denmark and I'm a young, a young guy. I'm probably 21, 22. Uh, I, I worked at DHL. I worked, um, I actually worked on a, a plant nursery. Um, that was pretty wild. Like I get, yeah, that's not that, that interesting, you know, just kind of get what you can get when you're living in a country and experiencing it had an excellent time. It was, it was an amazing place. I mean, I, I have to say Denmark is such a progressive place and people there are so well-educated and they are required by law to take six weeks off every year for a vacation. And people do, they travel quite extensively. They go to uh, Southern Europe or they'll go to Asia, Gotcha. gotcha. which is again, another kind of an integrated policy, which makes the barrier of entry higher for business. Um, there are other things mm. like taxes that can be higher and other things like that. But on the flip side, you have, for example, I went to language and integration school there, which um, you, I was required to because I had um, oh, really? I had a green card. So I was required to, first of all, here, here's where it gets tricky because I was required to own an apartment, which I ended up buying an apartment, which not an easy thing for a lot of people. Um, well, <laughs> yeah. I got a loan on an apartment just to put that yeah, clear. Sure, and sure. then had language school um, 18 hours a week in addition to working full time, which was quite grueling. So under that requirement, you know, basically you go to the school where they teach you Danish. Um, you meet people that are uh, both refugees and and other immigrants um, or green card holders, mm-hmm. and you have to do that for about a year and a half. And it was incredible. At the time, you had uh, you know the war going on in in southeastern Europe, and um, you know even aspects of perhaps genocide and things like that. And in the same classroom, you had refugees from both sides in wow. in this classroom. Wow. And some of them would not even look at each other, wouldn't even talk to each other. But I befriended everyone. Um, they had someone from Brazil, people from different European countries. Um, an incredible experience to just be in one place to um, move your life forward with others. That 
kind of um, foreigner experience or that immigrant experience that I had, it, it, it gave me a tremendous amount of compassion for, for everyone's situation. So how did it, how did it go from photographer? Well, you know, want to be professional yeah. photographer and kind of going down that path and actually, ironically, looking back, kind of going down a path that any early professional photographer would love to go down right? You just stick yourself in Thailand and move to Nepal and, right. and then go to, you know, Denmark and these other countries. And you kind of travel the world at a young age yeah. with the chance to take incredible photography. I know. To create I know. a portfolio that, so it, it, it's kind of, it, it's just a perfect scenario. One then, thing about photography, I mentioned it before about the, the filter you put on the world. Actually, you yeah. brought it up. The yeah. thing about photography is when you get very focused and immersed on it, you start to look at the world as though it's something geometric and shaped shaped for an image or mm -hmm. shaped to be presented and things like that. And the I think the reality of the world is the world isn't that way. That's just the way that we like to frame it. That's the way that's the story we like to tell about the world. So for me, um, like take putting the camera down and stopping to look at everything as an opportunity to express uh, myself artistically was an opportunity to kind of open my mind to other other things that I hadn't considered to to not be so myopic and for me that meant travel which I didn't realize that would be something that would kind of open open my eyes to an experience but obviously it's very difficult to be a professional traveler probably impossible because everybody mm -hmm. wants to be one what do we do do we do we write etc I wasn't a exceptionally great writer. I wasn't that great in school, frankly. Um, I put more, most of my efforts into uh, skiing and photography. So I don't think, uh, I don't think I had those skills. I could have developed them, but I, at the time I, I didn't really think about my profession so much. Right. If right. You're just kind of living. Yeah, no, it's kind of living. Living. And that that's good. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't advocate against that because what I know a lot of times that people get pushed to be something mm -hmm. that um, they don't necessarily want to be. For me, it wasn't that. I wanted to do what I want to do, and I had very supportive parents, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but I but I think that some people do get kind of guilted or or pushed to the extreme to be something that they're expected to be. And I don't think that that necessarily leads to better results. I know that the intention is always right, but but I think that sometimes people have to flip the switch and try something completely new, you know, if it means working on a farm or something like that. Was it strange when you told the people in your life that you were going to study environmental economics and go okay. down this path? Of... Yeah, love it. Love it. I love how the transition is great. So the, the story about environmental economics, um, long story short, um, I actually thought I, I, because of the travel, I thought journalism and I thought, well, I don't really know how to write really well. I, I convinced myself that I wanted to get into journalism. I discovered this field called environmental journalism mm, and okay. I moved, moved back to, which is environmental journalism is super fascinating. I just want to give a little homage yeah, there. For sure. It's, it's really um, amazing when people can write about nature and the environment and environmental politics and policies in a very succinct way. I thought that I wanted to be someone that both wrote about travel, but also about nature and things like that, because I grew up on this small island in the middle of forests in a DC powered 12, mm -hmm. you know, six volt home. Long story short, so you're super father. close to super close to nature. Yes. And I thought, okay, well, here I am like to travel, kind of like to travel like nature. This thing, environmental journalism seems like it makes sense. So I went to a state school back home. I put my backpack in a closet and said, okay, I'm just <laughs> going to get serious. I was actually 26 at the time when I started university. And I was 24 when I started. So very, awesome. similar. very similar. 
Yep. And, um, you know, I think one thing to note there as well, as you probably know, this is that when you go back, you're a bit, a little bit older, you're maybe a little bit more focused. Some of the distractions are the other way you yep. understand. Yep. Absolutely. And here I am going to college thinking, um, okay, it's environmental journalism in order to get into the environmental school, Huxley, it's, um, a state school in Washington state, really great environmental school. They required you to take some curriculum and that was also economics. And so here I am in economics, microeconomics 101, bored out of my mind, trying to stay cognizant, taking notes, not really understanding much of what's going on because I just didn't have a lot of formal training in mathematics and all these other things. Mm -hmm. I, but I'm super fascinated. I'm reading and this is another one of those funny stories that'll tell about my personality a little bit. So (laughs) I'm looking down in the textbook while the professor's upstage on the stage or on the, the podium writing on the board. And I read this graph about the top economic policies that autonomous agree with by kind of ranking in terms of percentage that agree, et cetera. And I noticed that at the top is this thing called the negative income tax, which is mm. from a person called Milton Friedman, kind of boring topic, but mm-hmm. long story short, what that is today is the, the, more or less the, he, he and his wife invented the concept of the universal basic income. And yep. almost all economists agree that that would be a good thing for the economy in the form of the negative negative income tax. There are slight differences, but more or less, it's the same thing. So long story short, I see this chart. I go up to the front front of the room and I ask the professor, you know, who's this Milton Friedman? Why do economists agree with it? And it broke off into a two hour long discussion about this innovative economist who, who this professor had a lot of passion for. And they charged me to get interested into the field of economics. And I ended up switching majors and went after it. So just stayed open and became, uh, I became trained in environmental economics, which is a kind of a blended degree. Um, some people, when you say that, they go, what is this? It, what it is, is basically a um, policy tool and an analytical tool that helps you measure actions, um, both from energy projects or engineering projects or government projects. I realized that after I graduated, cause I got a job with this incredible firm, um, that had been around for 25 years as an environmental consulting firm and uh, ended up working working with them. And then a lot of other things branched from there. I branched out into starting my own, um, environmental consulting firm and or consulting firm. And then long story short, like 10 plus years later, here, here I am real quick. Like, you know, UBI has, has kind of come back obviously to the forefront a little bit. It's, it's kind of, if you break it down, it's, it can actually be the most like bipartisan issue ever. Like if it's, it should be so unpoliticalized because I mean, it's just such mm-hmm. a, I don't know. I, I would love to do a whole I conversation agree. podcast. I fully agree. Because yeah, I, most people, I, when they get the details, they realize this is a pretty sensible policy. It, it really, it, it's just, it just makes a, a ton of, a ton of total sense. Anyway. So I think having that background, which is, it, it's also interesting because back then, you know, let's call it over a decade ago, environment, economics, a bit on the back burner. Right, whether <laughs> yeah, investment, you, think. you know, it, it, a, a little bit of of kind of this niche thing where yes. you know it, 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 it's sort of there, and I think people are aware of it. But from a capital allocation standpoint, from right. you know a policy standpoint, it, it, it's very much you know it's very much down the the agenda, uh, so to speak. Uh, but now, obviously, a decade later, it had it is the topic. It's the trending topic. It is yeah, the climate action top of top of mind of of every investor, capital allocator policymaker, entrepreneur across every sector 
uh, of business and, and economics, yeah. this is top of mind. How, how I guess over this, the past decade, I know it's obviously a long time, but did you see that ball rolling and that domino effect sort of yes. happening over time? Yeah. We're, when I was just wrapping up college, we're talking 07, which was, I mean, I remember, I remember, you know, the, the idea of clean energy or clean mm -hmm, technology right. being just like <laughs> invented, right? Like the, invented. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a, a wild time. You've got other um, movements of say the Kyoto protocol and other carbon carbon projects mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. validated on a, a government level in Europe, the US leaning toward cap and trade policies. So they, for example, cap and trade and other negative externality mechanisms policy-wise are all kind of the result of something like environmental economics or carbon tax and dividend and such like that. The um, movement toward carbon caps on a state level and also mm -hmm. a, na a national level were, were starting to really heat up. And especially with the price of oil going so high, people cared a lot more because they were getting, getting hurt at the pump, so to speak. I guess when we look at the, no pun intended, but when we look at the lens right now, through the lens of investors and, and policymakers and entrepreneurs even, it, this is still kind of new to a lot of people. Like, where would you recommend people kind of start to really learn about why this is important? Understanding why it's important to, to keep this mm -hmm. top of mind for anything you're working on, right? Whether, yes. whether you're on the capital allocator side or you're on the founder side, why this is an important thing to integrate into the foundation of what you do. Well, I think, yeah, it's a really good, it's a really good question. I, I'm going to try to tackle that one, but I don't know if I'll do it quite right. I'll just give it a shot. Personally, that it's important to find things that we can each do. I mean, this isn't like a cop-out answer. I actually, mm -hmm. I really feel this, that each of us can make a small part and those small parts add up to a whole. And I think it's just important to realize, you know, however obvious it is just kind of like you know, recycling slash water use slash how mm -hmm. much you drive your car slash kind of your, even down to your diet, you know, the, the plant-based right. diet is, is better for the environment. Um, it's, it's also showing to be better for your health. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing, the actions we can take that doing it in a Zoom meeting rather than flying across half of the country <laughs> and things like that, you know, uh, the, the things that are kind of boring, I think are, are important to just remind ourselves of that, that we can actually do something right now incrementally. Like even if I looked mm -hmm. around me right now, I could probably turn off one thing that's powered up. Sure, you know? it's, sure, it's, sure. It's not the the end all solution, I'd say, but it but it's important in terms of shifting behaviors and also allowing us to become more self aware and talk through the nuances together. Like overall, there are those things, but also as a founder, as a as a person who wants to professionalize that their passion for something like that, you know, look at yourself, a successful podcaster, someone that works with organizations that that help mitigate carbon or work towards mm -hmm. sustainability, you help create a voice for people like that. I guess it's like, you know, I, I also have a podcast. I've been doing that for a couple of years on positive on venture scale, positive impacts, trying to unpack what does venture capital plus impact look like. I take the sustainability view in general. I tend to not attach really strongly to one particular cause. I don't try to rank them and judge, right, you know, right. should you rank them the same degree I do, et cetera. For me, ecosystems are critical, but obviously they're integrated to other things like the climate. 
So uh, ecosystems will be damaged by climate change. And um, just on a local level, ecosystems are critically important in my view. The idea of anthropocentricism versus biocentricism versus ecocentricism had an impact on me in terms of how I thought about uh, my relationship and what I also call is like impact spheres. We mm -hmm. have our community, ourself, our, our local ecosystem, the broader ecosystem, the planet, the universe, these kind of however grandiose we want to get. Um, <laughs> I think it's just important to also look beyond ourselves as well in that sense and think like, what can we do? You know, is there a nonprofit we could donate mm -hmm. to, or is there an activity we can partner you know, eco tourism or for example, as, as long as it's not offsetting jobs or something negative and impactful, you start to think more in systems. And that helps in my opinion, to figure out ways to embrace complexity. And so the mm. more complexity you, you get into, the more you realize that, that, that a lot of things are interconnected in my opinion. So it's just a matter of being sensitive to that. As you know, you, you, you tackle a lot of these complexities and that's why I really admire your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. No, I listen, it's, it's been a great learning experience for me right? To, to be able to ask professionals throughout a ton of different conversations to, to get to understand the landscape of all this stuff more and more. And then, like you said, I think it's the analogy of baby steps, right? I think mm -hmm. it, using that to just learn one small thing and kind of incorporate that into your lifestyle at a very small level, you can make those changes within your life that slowly grow over time, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, five years down the line, you, you've kind of done more and more each year, you've kind of added something to your to your eco lifestyle a little bit, right? And, and and sort of that adds up over over time for you as an individual, right? And yes, then I agree. You, you tell you tell your your wife or your husband or your brother about you know something you changed in your life, and maybe they they pick it up, right? So there, yes. there's also a, a communal aspect to it, absolutely. Um, that that gets sort of tagged along to other people. Excitement about something that you're passionate for mm -hmm. can be a trigger and a catalyst yeah. for inspiring others. And you do that every day, Grant. You know, I don't need to remind you of that. One thing that gives me a, a guard, I'm guarded. So I have like a mental barrier against getting depressed about environmental catastrophes mm. because mm -hmm. Economics in itself is referred to as the dismal science already. You know, you're studying human psychology and <laughs> human behavior and, you know, the, the downsides of business. Add that to environmental economics, you get all these other things people just kind of want to push to the side. That doesn't need to be depressing in my view. It can be motivating because you can see that there are obvious things out there that have opportunities to solve. And so I think just being more solutions focused is, is a way to unlock excitement within oneself and others. So I, I, I want to get into something that I'm excited to talk to you about because one day I want to grow up and be like you. Oh, geez. And don't, don't I, ever <laughs> grow up. Don't do that. Don't do that. But uh, when did you decide you wanted to, to do responsibly ventures, you know, was it, was it a moment where you, you spoke with, yes. you know, whether yeah. it's family members or, or something? I, I can, I can answer that. Actually, it was about 15 years ago. And, um, it was back when I kind of discovered economics, I, I realized that I wanted to be this sustainability centric investor, but I just did not wow. know what that, I did not know what that looked like. I just, I I've known for 15 years, I've worked my way. Wow. Okay. So in the U S you, you, to be in the private markets as an angel investor, I last mm -hmm. couple of few years, my wife and I have been angel investors. It takes a tremendous amount of effort and work to get to from a financial basis. We both got to that status and we started kind of I started focusing on angel investing and the last couple of years I've been doing that. And it's been kind of focused on impact angel investing. 
which um, I've invested in about 30 different companies. The goal ultimately is to build the portfolio, start to start mm-hmm. show some traction, and then for myself, lean into starting a fund, being someone that doesn't have a former large exit at a, at right. a um, startup. Actually, I've never actually scaled the startups. So that's another point against me. It does help to build a portfolio, build your network and all these other things and really create a brand. I mean, yeah. you know, you being uh, leaning toward investing yourself, as you mentioned, you're building that brand, you're building your presence, you're building your, the the respect in the community. And um, so I think those are all things that just add up through time. Obviously over that time, build, I mean, you've, I mean, you've done it a perfect way, right? Like for, for somebody that, that just methodically thinks about it, right. And kind of just does the necessary things to build up the credibility Thank when you, you really, kind of you. when you really made the the decision, right. To, to actually say, this is kind of the time to do it. You also went out and did some things. Yeah. Um, worked where, in, worked in startups and hedge fund kind mm-hmm. of quantitative finance stuff for a while and programming and all this stuff. Like I, that, that could probably fill another show. Would you recommend that path for, for others as you went through that path? Are there things you would, you would do differently? Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I, I would say, I would say that my own investments have been primarily on sustainability, but sometimes mm-hmm. you have to make investments to, in order to have a balanced portfolio that, that don't, necessarily match a, a really tangible impact uh, aspect. I mean, ideally I would like every single investment I ever made and everything to be fully geared towards sustainability. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, I know that there are an oil company or two in my, my former por- portfolios. I've actually voted on proxies for uh, ha- having direct stock in oil companies, which I thought were doing better environmental mm-hmm. practices. And I think it was um, Exxon. I was invested in like five years ago, four years ago, and they had their first proxy vote, which I voted on for, I think it was like reporting their, their CO2 internally across their supply Mm. chain or something. And and that was a big deal at the time. I I just felt like that was a company that I wanted to support. I heard about the vote. I bought some shares. I voted on it. You know, I own some oil company. I'm I'm not evil because I did that. I had the right intentions, but sometimes we just don't always know. There's so many complexities to managing a public portfolio, et cetera. I don't, I don't think anyone is in a position of judgment. So it's uh, we just do our best. Well, you can't, I mean, the public markets, you really can't have not at the present moment, right? It's, it's always weird to see these ESG funds and these, you know, sustainability funds and all this stuff. I'm like, I don't know if you can really have that when you're just investing in public markets, because they're just not quite there yet on that side of things like yeah just- yeah it's it's difficult in my opinion i i think it's important to not discourage um i i know that it's always difficult like some people greenwash and things like that and yeah yeah greenwashing is probably part of all of our rhetorics in my opinion i i don't mm-hmm. even think we really know what that means frankly you know what is green well it, it's just a color <laughs> you know <laughs> that 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 was meant as a joke like you know we we were learning as we go i mean sustainability sustainability in itself the con the concept that was developed with the through the un some 20 plus 25 years ago that integration of economic environmental and social the integration of that is is wonderful and that's the direction we should we should go um, in my opinion the sdgs the sustainable development goals are incredible guideposts for what mm-hmm. the future should look like so i i use those as a proxy there's there's no set of standards right. nor will, will there likely ever be if i had to be quite frank about it i mean i'm certified under the un global reporting initiative and i know the standards of, of reporting for sustainability across 
the, all the sustainable metrics. And I do know that there are many subjective attributes and or mm -hmm. contentious ones. And, and I don't think that will change the more we, the more we highlight new areas of impact both social, environmental, and economic, I think that, that I personally think that we're going to, going to develop those in process. I, I don't think that we'll get to that static state. And I actually, I actually encourage us not thinking that we will, because that allows for new innovation. It allows for new dialogue. It allows for new inspiration. <laughs> maybe I'm a, maybe I'm an idealist. Yeah. As coming from an angel investor, now having like your own fund has do things change philosophically and how you look at companies or how you ask questions to founders or founding teams? Yeah, good question again. I think the way I'd answer this is I like I like to. I don't do this every single time, but I try to do this. I like to try to ask what are the what are the potential negatives and what are the potential positives mm -hmm. of your business say 5-10 years forward. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it opens up more of an honest dialogue about their vision, the practicalities around their strategy, et cetera. It also helps them think about, well, how can I remeasure the impacts that we're making? And, and so I, I like to actually encourage founders no matter what. And once I align with them, usually it's a matter of just, you know, what does this business look like? What's the competitive aspect? I don't like to put a lot of stringent sort of clauses on them and things like this. I want to support them as they scale their company. And many times that's aligning them with other people and network that can be really helpful, um, other investors, et cetera. In my view, that's that's my current strategy. And I think that that, that one's a, a good one to use. What I see often is maybe because some people are a little bit more impact what I call impact sensitive, um, mm -hmm. they may mm -hmm. default to being more requiring more because maybe they can, or because maybe the business itself wants that. And that's absolutely fine. In what I call VC impact, which is more on kind of the finance first impact side, we have the considerations of the fund life, for example, 10 years, mm -hmm. 12 yeah. years, 14 years at times. Our fund is actually up to 14 years, which is kind of nice to get a little bit of, bit of a buffer. If you're very patient and you add more friction and you put this much more toward you know, sort of impact control, sometimes what that can translate into is a fund that has to exit, uh, exit the investments earlier mm -hmm. at a lower valuation. Mm -hmm. And effectively you create what's called, you can as an investor by putting on more controls, create what's called a, um, a concessionary return, which, which basically means that you're not, you're not trying to outperform you're a competitor competing firms in the marketplace, but you're willing right. to accept less and you're attracting investors that are also open to that. With us at Responsibly Ventures, we're much more geared toward low friction, high high return, defensible impact, so to speak. I call it an impact moat where the impact itself is kind of a, is kind of a mechanism to scale the company. Like for, I'll take a kind of a, a use case example. Sure. I've used this before. I like it. It's Grove Collaborative. They they are a direct to consumer. They're actually a B Corp, which is pretty unique. They they scaled to um, billion dollar valuation. Wow! And they did so in a very competitive like household cleaning market that's been around that's forever. Right. Yep, yep. I and I this. think their moat isn't. I actually I've said this out loud. I'll say it. I'll say it again. I don't think their moat is the B Corp status at all. I actually think that their moat is that they're they're holding a focus on their mission, which is to provide like I, I don't want to state their mission correctly, but it seems as though it's to provide um, uh, non hazardous, uh, low package waste, direct to consumer opportunities, and yep. and they've done that at a time when I think that a company like that could scale. Um, so right. just I guess to say like if they took the non hazardous aspect out of it. 
they could probably still survive, but I think that they, that aspect of it was a moat to their company that allowed them to at least scale in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think it's, you're starting to see, I think companies, you know, whether we call them, you know, impact or sustainable companies, actually, I think that, I think the venture world is looking at them a bit differently now because they've had quote unquote unicorns, maybe poke their head out a little bit, right? The potential potential of, oh, this is not like kids child's play anymore, right? It's not, it's not cute, right? It's, it's actually real businesses that think at a foundational level about this stuff and build out, you know, elite elite teams and elite thought leaders in their companies and they could scale like a SaaS product can, right? You know, <laughs> for a term that, that VCs love, right? In, in that business model. I would yeah, like to point the listeners at, at this research I did. I spent like 50 hours doing this, what's called a, I call it a VC impact landscape. And I tried to see what companies had scale post series A M&A or IPO over the last 10 years, went through about 10,000 companies and about 200 impact verticals. I broke out the companies that had scaled across the 17 SDGs across sustainable wow. tech and social tech. And there were only 200 companies that fell very strongly into the, those buckets. I, I ran out of time. I could have done a deep, deep build analysis on the <laughs> impact factors, but I, I kind of put it on a very kind of like uh, obvious level, we'll, we'll say just because of time. But um, it there were about 200 companies across the 17 SDGs that appeared. And I did that for kind of to show that this is an area that we should be paying attention to the SDGs or impact focused, scalable VC impact companies. People have really, really responded to that. It's, I think it's, um, I think it's about, about how you focus it, how you frame it. I want to talk a little bit about collaboration in, in that, you know, when I speak to tons of founders, tons of brands, it's very non-competitive to them. Right. It, it's, it's, hmm. it's much more of what we're doing as a company, as a brand is, is right. sort of an, an ends to a mission that is, is different than just kind of exiting. Right. So you, I see a lot of partnerships mm-hmm. with brands, a lot of collaborations with, it's much more of a community of founders yes. not competing with each other, but rather, Hey, you're, you're trying to, you know, attack you know, poverty or hunger, we are as well. Mm-hmm. Let's team up somehow, right? I, I wonder if you've seen that on the venture side with funds, maybe being more like that yeah. within this space. We are cooperative and and pretty much most early stage funds are where it gets different to my understanding is where funds compete for hot deals. People yeah. fight to get into deals. I, I'm yeah. not in that space. I intentionally wanted us to be out of that space and yeah. have more time to work on the relationships and steer people toward a healthier form of venture capital, so to speak. I'm yeah, I'm a lot yeah. of venture capital, but I, I want us to I want us to make sure that that impact aspect is there as much as we can. I'll end on a little bit of the future and a little bit of what you're optimistic about, perhaps and 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 what do you see just from, I guess, the companies that pitch you, what, what is fascinating you right now? And maybe, you know, what we as consumers or, or we as people every day, like, what can we look towards the next five to 10 years of innovative companies and, and businesses coming out? Like, what are you seeing out there in, in the world that's really inspiring you right now? Grant, oh my gosh. I mean, I'm just, again, I wanted to say, like, I'm so honored that you 
taking the time here and um, listen to this wild story. And I just, <laughs> I don't know, you, you know, you, you just brought me back to reality a bit. So I owe you on that one. I, I, I don't necessarily know, to be, to be quite frank. I, I think that what I've been thinking about recently is that I believe we're going to go through multiple waves of sustainability, similar to like, let's say what we saw to, to solar in the 1980s, to clean, mm-hmm. clean tech in the, in the 2000s, to now climate tech uh, here. Oh. It, it, it's, it's, we're going to see cycles of continuation. I think we're going to see a lot of that on the social impact side, the social good side, the sustainable uh, tech, social tech, all of these things are going to branch out into new verticals, new focuses. It's going to effectively expand different ways that we attack more complex problems. I just think that technology is a great way to, to really get down into the core of different problems. So I, that's why I'm, I'm, long on technology, I think that it usually ends up helping people in the long run. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I knew it would be, I knew it would just be a fruitful conversation and and I I wish we could do uh, so many more of these and hopefully we will down the line. I love it. I'm gonna hold my feet to the fire. I love it, uh, <laughs> and I want to get I want to get you on our clubhouse. Uh, we have these weekly clubhouse shows on VC Impact. We have some panels. I want to get you on a panel. Um, I know maybe we'll have to resort the times. We usually do it at three thirty in the afternoon yeah, on Friday. No, hey, it, 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 if I could make it happen, I would. I would love to. I would love to do it.